You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Most enterprises use disparate systems to manage spend. The result? A reactive manual approach. CFOs and controllers, you deserve better. You deserve a unified spend platform from Brex. Brex makes it easy to proactively control spend with cards, spend management, travel, and bill pay in one place. You can create budgets with controls built in, track and adjust in real time to keep teams accountable, and automate compliance to close the books faster. Ready to control your spend with one unified platform? Visit Brex.com. Hello and Happy New Year. Thank you for joining me on the premiere episode of Season 5. Today's guest is Justin Guarini, who you probably know from American Idol, but has done so much more and has a lot to teach us about becoming an artist, finding our own path, and realizing that fame isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's so interesting looking back on it now because I see this sort of epic rise and then this just slow public descent into madness for me. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, or Win Me for short. Here you'll learn how artists and creatives handle the setbacks and challenges that come with a career in the performing arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver Jones, a professional actor and singer for almost 30 years, and a backstage expert who knows firsthand the ups and downs we all face. You can take a deeper dive into the WinMe community by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and clicking join. There you can become a monthly member with early access to episodes as well as other helpful content, coachings and consultations with me, and the ability to ask questions to upcoming guests before their episodes come out. Again, you'll find all that and more at whyillnevermakeit.com. Today's season opener is part one of my conversation with Justin Guarini. He and I met back in the summer of 2018 when I was in the Bucks County Playhouse production of 42nd Street. Now, Justin wasn't in that show, but he is on the board of the Playhouse and has also performed there at other productions. He'll talk about one stressful time on their stage a little later. But I wanted you to get a sense of the kind of person Justin Guarini is. 
obviously I knew who you were, you know, people know who you are, but sure. uh, it was just so like, cool. You're sitting next to me and we're just chit chatting. So it That's was, it was it a wonderful way to meet you and who you are now is who you were then and who Cheers. you come across as. So I, I think finding that sense of yourself that that's still something that i'm, I'm working on is finding that that, that sense of who i am and Please. being real as i can be keep doing it it's <laughs> it's not easy to do it is a challenge to do in a world that is so filtered in a world yeah. that is so facetuned right you know it's like we only the best of we get to see the best of on social media and then we're like oh my life is not like that but we forget that we're watching someone's highlight reel we're not watching the entire story it actually took about a year of back and forth and coordinating schedules but justin is finally here to share his entire story in part one of our conversation you'll hear about the blessings and struggles in his life that led up to american idol and why he almost turned it down In part two, we'll learn from the various Broadway productions he's been a part of and the lessons he took away from each of them. For Justin, his introduction to music and singing came fairly early in life. I started at four years old in the Atlanta Boys Choir in Atlanta, singing a lot of sacred music, a lot of choral music. And then from there, throughout elementary school, I would be in choir, but I never quite did any of the shows. I was a late bloomer when it came to doing like the proper like musical or play of the year. And I was a latchkey kid and certain days of the week, we were um, able to stay in school late and just have like fun or whatever till our parents were off work and could come pick us up. And one day somebody literally rolled in the AV cart with the VCR and the big TV and they popped in West Side Story. And that was my first musical I ever saw. And I will never, ever forget leaving, walking to my parents' car. And there was a pretty good distance between the front door and my parents' car and doing whatever my approximation was of the Jerome Robbins choreography and feeling like I could fly. It gives me goosebumps to just talk about it right now Mm. because it's so visceral and it just is, like I still feel that way when I step on the stage. Justin's father was a law enforcement and political figure in Atlanta, and his mother was one of the first anchors on CNN. So having such prominent parents helped him see that being in front of people and being on camera was just a normal thing and nothing to shy away from. So I grew up around heads of state from other countries. I grew up traveling all over the world. And I grew up around a lot of entertainers, and especially in Atlanta, uh, a lot of Black entertainers. And it was such a big piece of what makes me who I am and sound the way I sound. But there was another specific moment in Justin's life when he found his purpose and that desire to perform awakened within him. I remember being eight years old and in the audience of uh, a concert where the Jackson 5 were getting back together. It was called the Victory Tour. Like the Jackson 5 were obviously a huge act when they were younger, right? But they were getting together. And this Michael had already gone into the stratosphere, right? So he was was already king of pop. Right. He was coming down from upon high to be with his brothers. And I was a part of it because my father was a major in the Atlanta Police Department, would later go on to be chief. But the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, where the Braves used to play, was where this concert was. And this is back in the day, 
like in the 80s where you could sell out stadiums where most touring acts would do that. And so I was there in the audience, the lights, the music, the crowd, the bass thumping in my chest, the costumes, everything, just the choreography, the Jacksons. And I remember specifically pointing to the stage and saying to no one in particular, myself, I want to do that. And that was the moment that I realized this is for me. Everything that I'm seeing up there, I resonate with. I feel it. I know I can do it. And I'm going to. And that was that. It sounds like you found that celebratory aspect of being on stage. No, no matter what role, no matter what song, it's a celebration to be in that character. Absolutely. And the celebration of being that character is something that I totally resonate with. But now, especially through teaching and especially through what I've learned through the doing of it for the past 10 years, I recognize that it's celebrating the things that I resonate with inside of that character. And it's not necessarily the the good things, but also the dark secrets. I know that I've stood on stage at the Gershwin when I was playing Fierro, and I've told some of my most intimate, deepest, darkest secrets to an audience of, you know, a thousand people or whatever it is at the Gershwin, 1600 at the Gershwin. But I use the words of Fierro. I use the actions of Fierro and his thoughts. And there's something so thrilling about that. That is a depth that I didn't understand until I really got into the craft. So when it came time to go to college, I guess you were looking for colleges to study musical theater or vocal performance, right? Well, really, it was just vocal performance for me. So one summer, I was accepted into the Westminster Choir College summer vocal program. And I had been in choirs and sung plenty of sacred and secular music. But that was my real first taste of getting in touch with my classical voice. And I fell in love with it because I've been listening to opera. My parents played it and, and things like Phantom of the Opera, right? Which is like very, it's musical theater, but it's still very much operatic and Les Mis. So when it came to choosing schools, I was accepted into CCM, into their opera program. <laughs> I was going to go be an opera major. And then I got accepted to University of the Arts. And instead of studying opera, I had the option to study vocal performance. And that opened up such a huge window for me because I was so concentrated on like choral music and sacred music and all of that. But when I went to University of Arts, I discovered jazz. And that for me was it. I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I just knew that I was going to be a jazz singer. Was that because there was just a freedom that comes with jazz that you don't have in choral? Absolutely. There was something that was laid back. And again, I grew up listening to all kinds of music, everything from ABC, Another Bad Creation, to Metallica and Tool, and then to, you know, Frank Sinatra and Pavarotti. And I just was like rained on with all kinds of music. But it wasn't until I got to college that I really got to actually dig into it and do it myself. And so I was singing classical music. I was singing jazz. I was singing more operatic. And and so it just really gave me a a love for all things vocal performance. So 
you ended up graduating with vocal performance <laughs> or musical theater? No. <laughs> uh, oh no. Oh, sweet Patrick. No. <laughs> I didn't. I may still be, but definitely was for a while a cautionary tale at mm. my college. My freshman year of college, my internal mantra was what can school do for me? As opposed to what can I do for my damn self in school? Right. And so I was a terrible student, a horrible student. And I think what really did me in was the 8 a.m. go-to class, sit in the dark, and watch slides in art history. That was uh, what did yeah. me in. Oh, see, what did me in was geography at 8 a.m. <laughs> oh, no. You're like, why? Why yeah. would you do that to people? I understand yeah. you got to have the you, know, you got to have that in there for the grades, but it just... It set me off in a way where I was just like, I don't care. I did very well in my actual music classes. But when it came to all the other, I was like, this this doesn't make any sense. This is how I felt in high school when I was in economics. I was like, why am I here? I want to sing. I wanted to, So I was a terrible student. And the zenith of my horribleness was at jury. And jury is one of those things where at the end of the year, you are tasked as a vocal performance major to learn uh, a certain amount of songs and you need to know who wrote them and all the lyrics and all the everything. So I had four songs that I had to know front to back and I only learned two of them. (laughs) Brilliant. And of course, they're only going to ask you for those two. Right. Right. Well, they asked me to do what they're like, hey, what do you want to start with? I was like, yes. One out of two. And so I did it. And I said, okay, what would you like to hear next? And I'm thinking like, come on, come on, come on, come on, be the, be that one. And then of course they chose the one that I didn't know. And I said, I, I'm sorry, I don't know it. And I look back and it's like, here I was at like 18, 19, I could not learn being given them months in advance for songs like, ugh. and so anyway, they kicked me out of the program. Oh, <laughs> Long story gosh. Short. Oh they kicked me out. But it was the greatest thing that could have happened to me because I was like, oh, well, I'm going to show them. I'm going to go over to the musical theater. I'm going to go to the musical theater. I'm going to be a musical theater major because I love musical theater. Right. And it was sort of like an F you, but it was also like a, Hey, I love this. I'm going to do it. And uh, there are also uh, a lot of girls that I can hang around in the dance department, which is right next door. So like, sweet, I win, right? I win. And so I went into musical theater liking it, um, having grown up listening to it. But I think what really got me, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Because I took my first stage combat class and I was like, what? Oh, that's fun. It was so cool. I mean, like the rolling around and like I learned how to kick people without actually kicking them and all the things that we learned. And I was just like, this is sweet. (laughs) This is awesome. Like total, like 100% boy, right? And then I obviously began to fall in love with the actual, like just the, the, the music and the movement. And it was just the culmination of all these things that I love, the singing, the acting and the dancing. And it was while in college that Justin auditioned for his very first Broadway show that would end up creating a fork in the road, having a major impact on Justin's life and career. I didn't really start auditioning until The Lion King came through. And this was in 98, 99. And so they came to Philadelphia and they're like, hey, we're doing some auditions for The Lion King. And I was like, hey, sweet, I'll go to that. I'm a musical theater major. Why not? And so uh, my 
first sort of memory of auditioning, I mean, really going to like a major audition was this Lion King audition. And I will never forget walking into the room, being a musical theater major and being very serious about myself at all of 19. And I walk into the room and I sing, um, I prepare to sing a Negro spiritual, Motherless Child, which is very appropriate for, for that setting. And I'll never forget just standing there very still, taking a moment. I literally bowed my head and I just closed my eyes and I just took a deep breath. And then I lifted my head. And as I was breathing in on the cusp of breathing out to sing, the person on the other side of the table went. (laughs) And it was literally one of those seconds where I was like, I was like, (laughs) the note note got crammed in my throat, cracked, broke. And I just smiled and looked at them. And then I took another breath and I started singing. But it was one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me because it taught me such a great lesson to A, not be distracted by what's happening on the other side of the table and B, to not take a moment. (laughs) Moment. A deep moment. Did he clear his throat on purpose? Oh, oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely, 100%. Because here's the schmuck, like, just like deep, like, I, it was... It could have been 30 seconds for all I know, you know what I mean? Which is an eternity. Like I really was like, I, I'm going to deeply invest in this moment. And boy, did I ever. And fortunately they called me back and I ended up being uh, accepted uh, into a masterclass up in New York for the show. A lot of times shows will do this. For those of you who don't know, they'll, they'll bring in, um, singers that they're interested in, performers, and just kind of teach them the, the background of the show. And this is where you'll work with the music directors, choreographers of the show and kind of get to know the show a bit better. It, it's basically a great way for them to prepare you in hopes that you'll then audition and make it into the show. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's so beautifully put. For you, what was their process like? They were less teaching us the music, which they, they did for sure, but they were more interested in teaching us the culture because you think 1998, 99, internet does not exist like it does. You know, we're still in encyclopedia land. Uh, for, for, again, for those of you yeah. who remember encyclopedias, world right? Book. I, I had my right. stack of world book encyclopedias. Yes. yes, right? And so we just didn't have the sort of reach that we do um, now in terms of really understanding and being able to easily digest other cultures um, uh, without actually being there. And so they focused on, okay, this show is all from Lebo M, who's from South Africa. Here's the history of South Africa. Here's apartheid. Here are the two different factions, almost races within the race of Zulu and Sutu. And here's how you pronounce these words. It's like, Wakala Wakonyu or Wakuma, like all of that clicking and all that stuff. And that doesn't mean anything, by the way, for the, those of you who are listening, it means nothing. So I'm not trying to pretend like I know the language, <laughs> but, like, but it, it's just like all the, and they taught us all these really funny phrases. And uh, one, the a gentleman who was in the chorus, who was kind of like Lebo's right-hand man, was leading this class. And he was just, he explained to me uh There was a time in South Africa during the dark days of apartheid where you could be walking down the street as a a black person and a police officer could pinch you 
And based upon your response, you know, in America, we go, ow, or ooh, or like oof would be something, you know, out of Spain, maybe. But based on your response, it would, uh, I think in their response was ish. Um, based on the response, they could jail you because it would tell them whether you were Zulu or Sutu or something like that. And it, it, I mean, just wild sort of stories that we would get. And and it was such a beautiful moment for me because I really never truly understood the depth of apartheid. And I had years earlier been with my father in Atlanta when Nelson Mandela came through on his big tour of America after Mm -hmm. he had been freed. And I knew there was all this pomp and circumstance around it, but I didn't really truly understand what made Nelson's story so special uh, until uh, this gentleman really explained how obscene the treatment was in South Africa at the time. And as far as you as as Justin, did it have a significance to you? You know, did you grow up around a lot of Black history and knowing African history and this and as far as your own background? Yeah, my background is, um, I like to say my heritage like is like a UN meeting because I have African-American and Italian and England, English and Irish and and so the the main part of my heritage really is my father is black and my mother is Italian. And when they separated when I was younger, it was almost like my life was split because I would visit my father in the summers in Atlanta, which was then and, and now still is a very, very beautifully black city. Uh, and then during the school year and the rest of the year, I would be either, depending upon, my dad worked, my stepdad worked in the government. And so uh, we would be either in Virginia or Pennsylvania and, and two, so two disparate places. Uh, and so when I went down to Atlanta, I would be Justin Bell, son of Eldrin Bell, prominent uh, politician. I would go to Black Baptist Church on Sunday. I would be around my family, uh, uh, which was almost exclusively African-American. Then during the regular school year, I would be up with my stepfather and my mother, who are both Italian, and I would be almost exclusively around my Italian family. And so I loved the richness of both of those you know lives that I was living, but there was always a disconnect. And it wasn't until I sat and I really listened and understood the stories behind the stories, you know, it's like the the behind the music of the Lion King, that I really began to bridge the gap between those two uh worlds. And when I understood that there was almost a st- stigma for people in Africa who were light-skinned Black people, that it really started hitting with me. Like, because I never felt growing up, to be perfectly frank, I never felt like I was accepted by either race because I kind of was not, I I would feel so um, self-conscious when I was in Black Baptist Church in Atlanta because I was like like the lightest guy there. Right. And I kind of always felt like a little like an interloper. 
And then I would be up north and uh, I was around all of, you know, the majority of Caucasian people. And I just was always, I had different experiences and I wanted to talk about some of these things, but I felt like it just didn't, it didn't make any sense and they, they didn't quite get it. And, and, uh, you know, in certain parts of Virginia at the time and, and even some of the older, older people in my family, it was hid- a hidden fact that I was African-American. They wouldn't, mm. my parents, my, my stepdad and my mom wouldn't talk about it, not because they were ashamed, but because they did not want me to be ostracized or they didn't want uh, me to, to suffer as a result of it. And so there was this huge disconnect that began to, to come together with uh, my master class and understanding the Lion King. Did you continue on and, and have further callbacks and stuff like that with the Lion King? Yeah, for years, for three or four years, they were like, uh, just keep coming, come in, come in. I remember I sat in the office in New York, I think in Times Square, with the associate director, uh, directly under Julie Taymor. And she's like, look, we really love you. We, we, we know that you're going to be a part of this. We just don't have a spot for you right now. And I think that was a very kind way of saying we like you, but you're just not quite mature enough. You're not quite there yet. We know we know you're going to get there, but just keep going, just keep going. And I was still in college at this point. Um, and so it, it just, it went on for years and then I heard nothing. And my college days were over. I think I spent three years in college with three different majors. <laughs> and I said, okay, this is not for me, or I am not for this rather. And, uh, after that, I moved down to Miami and I was like, I'm going to pursue pop music. And a friend of mine and I moved down there. He's like, I know a whole bunch of DJs. We'll get you, we'll get you going in music. And my music career um, in Miami was uh, next to non-existent. <laughs> what I basically did was I moved to Miami to be a busser in nightclubs, in one of the hottest nightclubs in Miami. I was the guy who would clean up the the uh, limes and sweep up the bottles people had broken at the tables. And uh, when- So you got to hear more music than you ever got to sing. Oh, I got to hear <clears throat> that kind of music, right? Yeah, mostly that. And I never, ever got to sing. And there was one time, and I wonder what would have happened. And I, I have never told her this story, but I would wonder what would have happened because Jennifer Lopez and P. Diddy, back when they were together, came in for P. Diddy's birthday. And it was a big deal. And everyone was like, P. Diddy's coming in. It was like this whole huge deal. And and I remember being there and working. And somebody was like, yo, you should go up to J-Lo and sing. You should go up to J-Lo and sing. And I was like, no. <laughs> I, what? <laughs> P. Diddy's going to kill me. <laughs> like, there's no way. I, are you kidding me? I'm not going to do that. And I chickened out. And I wonder what would have happened if I had gone up to her and sang. I probably would have been fired. But uh, but that was like my life. That I was just so desperately trying and failing to uh, be a singer. And then I had enough of the nightclubs. And I moved back home to Pennsylvania. And one day, to tie it all together, my mom saw this advertisement on TV and it was for the show nobody'd ever heard of called American Idol. And uh, she's like, Hey, here's the website. It's, you know, fox.com forward slash American Idol. And we're talking like 2002, maybe even one when the internet is not, internet is not what we know it to be today. Yeah. Right? Amazon was just selling books. Barely. That's all they were doing at that point. Yes, yeah. 
Exactly. No social media, no nothing. I mean, I went to, you know, fox.com forward slash American Idol and like it was a janky website. Links were broken. Some <laughs> it just didn't work, right? It, so much of it didn't work. But what did work was all that paperwork where you sign your life away. And I signed my life away and uh, then found myself in New York City standing in line waiting to audition. Now, you have to think back to 2001, 2002, before anyone knew what American Idol was. Yes, tens of thousands of people may have auditioned for that first season, but no one really knew if the show was going to be a success. In fact, all the networks, including Fox, passed on the show initially. But it was actually the daughter of Rupert Murdoch, head of Fox's parent company, who had loved the original British version of the show and later persuaded her father to buy the series. The rest, as they say, is history. American Idol would eventually go on to eight consecutive years as the highest-rated television program. I mean, you simply couldn't get away from it. According to Billboard magazine, in its first 10 years, Idol spawned 345 chart-topping hits and a slew of pop stars, including, of course, Kelly Clarkson and Justin from that first summer season. But initially, of course, no one, Justin included, knew what American Idol was or how popular it would become. So he continued to pursue other opportunities. As we spoke about it, in college, I was studying vocal performance. I was studying musical theater. I was studying acting for film and television. Then I went into the nightclub scene, and I kind of just was around that mess. And then I came back, and I started auditioning for American Idol. But before I actually went to that audition, I felt like I was... I just needed to perform. And so I saw in the newspaper an advertisement for a company called Cutting Edge DJs. And they were looking for like singers and dancers. And so I literally go to, I think it was the Adams Mark Hotel in Philadelphia and audition. I have a good time. They're like, hey, we would love to hire you. And so I become a singer and a dancer for a DJ company that mostly does bar and bat mitzvahs, right? So I am like the party pupper <laughs> oh, yeah. at bat, but like just like all of it, right? And so I, in 2001, was doing at least one or two bar bat mitzvahs every weekend, just dancing and singing, having a great time. I think they paid me like 125 bucks per mitzvah, which was like, I was like, yeah, sweet. So I'll take that all day long, right? Like, I, I mean, that was big money then for me. And so I was like, yes, doing it, loving it. And I did not realize what an amazing proving ground that was and how it would set me up for everything that would come after that. So I was being forced to entertain 13-year-old children. Now, <sighs> anybody knows a 13-year-old or has a 13-year-old, you would know that they, that they can be challenging, right? <laughs> and so, and so uh, most of the bon bat mitzvahs that I did were not cheap. Most of them aren't cheap anyway, but these were especially not cheap. And so at times, not always, but at times I was dealing with children who were uh, pampered, shall we say, and who behaved a certain way and who treated me a certain way. And I had to break through that and in a very respectful way, gain their uh, uh, trust and command them and, and just 
keep them away from Bobola and their parents so their parents could get drunk and have a good time at the mitzvah they paid like $50,000 for. And so I had to entertain people and be quick on my feet. And just when horrible things happened, you got to like, hey, make it, make it the best. And so American Idol came around and I auditioned for that. And I obviously got to um, the, the part where they say, hey, you're going to Hollywood. And I was like, okay. Who knew what that was, right? Free plane ticket to LA, a place I'd never been before, California. I'd never been to the West Coast at that point. Um, And so I'm sitting in my car about to go to the office at Cutting Edge DJs. And after at least a year of silence, I get a phone call. I'm like, oh, that's a New York number. I pick it up. Hello. Hey, it's Bender Casting the people who cast The Lion King. And they say to me, hey, we finally got it. We've got this role for you. It's an ensemble role on Broadway. The The Lion King, you will be making your Broadway debut. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I've auditioned for four or five years for this thing. I oh never gosh. thought I would get it. And then I had to say, and there's a joke that we all uh, at one point or another say in the theater community. It's like whenever your phone rings, you're like, oh, oh wait, excuse me. Oh, this is Broadway calling. Sorry, I gotta go. And literally, Broadway called. Yes. Broadway called. Broadway called. And I had to say to Broadway, after they said, we've got the role for you. Finally, we're ready. We want you to make your Broadway debut. I had to say, well, there's the show. It's out in LA. Um, I'm supposed to fly out in a couple of days. I might get cut. Can I, can I call you back? And they're like, oh, yes, they hung up in a bit of a huff. And so fast forward to seven days later, um, I've been out in LA, 126 kids came out, it was cut in half, and then it was cut again. And so we're getting down to um, what would at the time be the top 30. And the top 30 would then go on to vie for the top 10, which would be the televised, you know, you know, broadcast after that. And so I knew I had to call Broadway back and say, Yes or no. And so I was wrestling with the problem all day. I was, uh, was, you know, going through the throes of Hollywood week. If you've ever seen it, uh, it is, it is hard. They make you, they put you through your paces and they make it extremely challenging for you. And they try and break you down because they know that on the broadcast, you are going to be required to do basically what a lot lot of things, Mm. which which, funny enough, like if you've ever done a play or ever done a musical, I mean, it's just, that's, that's it, you know, have to learn things super quick and, and then put them up in front of an audience. That's what we do, right? Right. It's tech rehearsal 10 out of 12. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. That's it. You're done. Right. And so, you know, it's like summer stock. I was already feeling a little worn out by that. I knew I had to make this phone call and I was wrestling with the, the problem and Hollywood week at the time was held in the Pasadena civic center. And I was walking down the aisle, Pasadena, California, and thinking about this, how am I going to call these people? What am I going to say? Am I going to go with the show, Lion King, or am I going to go with American Idol? I might be cut. I look at the stage, and for just out of nowhere, I start bawling, just start crying. Hmm. And I try and get myself together, and I'm like, please, nobody see, you know, I'm 20, 20, pure boy, 22-year-old boy, and I'm like, oh, nobody seems to cry, right? And uh, I realize in the moment, that I looked up at the stage and on that stage at the Motown 50th anniversary, that was the moment on that stage that I was performing on for American Idol, trying to make my way through. That was the stage that Michael Jackson first showed the world the moonwalk. 
That was the stage that so many of my heroes in the pop world had performed on. And so many people that I loved and respected. And I was there. And I was on that same, I was treading the same boards. And a voice inside me just said, go with this. Do this. This is it. This being American Idol. This is it. Please stick with this. And I dried my eyes. I literally called up uh, a bender casting and I said, <laughs> I was like, thank you so very much. I This has been a dream of mine to be on Broadway, but there's something about this show that I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to go with it. And, and that was a huge fork in the road for me. And I, I chose American Idol. And um, it was just gave me a huge foot in the door. And funny enough, 10 years later, I would come back to musical theater and my opening night cast party was held in the same hotel, the Millennium Hotel, in the same conference room that I sat and I waited to audition for American Idol. It would certainly be an understatement to say that American Idol changed Justin's life, bringing him to a nationwide audience and providing him with opportunities he had never seen before. In part two of our conversation, Justin will talk about the roller coaster ride that was American Idol. It's so interesting looking back on it now because I see this sort of epic rise and then this just slow public descent into madness for me. So whatever happened with Lion King? Did he ever regret not choosing that Broadway debut? We'll discuss all that as well as the lessons he learned from some of the biggest names on Broadway. And, you know, that's what I love about my conversation with Justin, that no matter how much fame he achieved or opportunities came his way, he was still a student of theater. He kept learning and growing as an actor and as an artist. Are you looking to do the same in 2021? Well, now you can not only listen to these episodes, but you can get one-on-one coaching with me about your career, the direction it's going. I mean, it's a strange time for all of us. COVID has so upended and changed our lives and the career that we love so much. I mean, for me, it was Christmas Day that I started getting COVID symptoms. And for the next week and a half or so, was dealing, thankfully, with mild symptoms. But it was certainly no fun. A lot, a lot of bedtime. But it is certainly the hope that 2021 will bring theater and performing and our lives back to some version of normalcy. So go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click join to find out how you can become a Win Me artist and grow in this business. You can also find a link to that in the show notes. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of recording, editing, and producing this podcast. Dylan Adams is the booking producer. Music in this episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Vortex. Join me next time for part two of my conversation with Justin Guarini as we talk more about why I'll never make it.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.